0: this morning, we are continuing our New Testament survey. We're looking this morning at the book of Hebrews. My goal this morning is to make it through the whole book in one fell swoop like we've done with the others. But then we're going to spend three weeks, I expect, dissecting the book out a little bit. I'd promised this to my lawyer friend down in the front about six months ago. He said, you are going to spend some time in Hebrews. I love that book. I said it will come. It's just a matter of time. And so it's here and uh, we will spend this. I'm excited about it. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. and, and, And I just am really excited about getting to teach it. But this morning, I want to teach it in one fell swoop before we dig down a little bit deeper. So I hope you'll join me and I hope you'll be blessed by this lesson. It's certainly a blessing to me. Let's look at Hebrews in an overview. Now... The, the lesson introduction I wrote this week while in trial and each day that I'm able to in trial at the end of court, we finish around five o'clock or so, we have to do a few things with the judge after the jury leaves and then I head back to the hotel and as quickly as possible I try and change into running gear because I, I live in a constant uh, um, uh, predicament of perhaps being in trial for eight, ten weeks where the most exercise I get is walking from the hotel to the car or from the car to the courtroom. And that's basically, if you wear a Fitbit, about 100 steps a day. It's not really going to get you there. So I try really hard to do some, uh, at least a 20-minute run. If I can put a couple of miles under me, then I'm happy. So I was running, and we, we stay near a place called the Katy Trail converted railroad tracks of the Katy Railroad right out of downtown Dallas. And so this is basically downtown Dallas, just right on the edge is where I pick it up, and I can jog out for a mile or so, turn around, jog back, and I've gotten my exercise in, and then I go back into the tunnel where I live and spend the rest of the time working. Well, I had done this, and in the process of riding back, I, uh, uh, I'm sorry, periodically I have to check my watch. Our daughter Sarah has cut church this morning. She is at an, an a debate tournament in, at Emory University. And they just finished the, the semifinal round. And so I got to check to see if she makes it to finals. And this is like a really big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. I'm really proud of her. Really proud of her. So I was jogging, so you'll have to excuse me. Anytime my watch vibrates, it's kind of like, eh? Um, so I was very excited, uh, uh, to, to get to run one night last week. And while I was running, I was listening to some Hillsong songs that my daughters have turned me on to that really just blessed the socks off of me. I was, so I'm, I'm running and I'm worshiping the Lord while I run. And it's just a, a, a phenomenal opportunity. And as I did it, I started thinking, you know, is this, uh, uh, Okay, Rebecca, you're not allowed to text while I'm talking, honey, because I just got that text, okay? I love you. (laughs) I can get away with that because she knows I adore her. All right, and she can get away with that because she knows I adore her. Um, She was just giving her sister a thumbs up. Um, So... Uh, uh, I'm running, I'm worshiping the Lord, and I'm thinking, I've been listening to songs and worshiping the Lord, and I'm thinking about writing my Sunday school lesson, and I'm 55, and I've been doing this for well over 40 years. And it's the same Lord, and it's the same heart, though grown, I hope, that's been worshiping the Lord for so long. And I thought, it's so interesting for me to think of myself and see the faith of a child in the life of a man. Because I am a child, but I am also now a man. And it's that same faith. And so the faith of a child in the life of a man took my brain immediately to Jesus' parable in Matthew 12 of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus says that there's a... a a, a planter who's walking down, sowing a a field. And back in that day, they would have a pouch that they wore, the seeds in the pouch, and they would just walk with a rhythmic throwing of the seed. And that's the way they would sow the field. And so the man's sowing the field, and Jesus says there are four soils where the, the seed is hitting. The first is the soil of a hardened path. And on that path, the seeds land, and the birds just come and pluck it up. And it's eaten before it ever starts to grow. There's also some some soil that's really just a dusting almost of soil over rock because it's bedrock underneath. And those plants, they may spring up initially because of the soil, but the roots can't grow because it's, it's rock. And so just as soon as they spring up, Once the sun comes out, the plant shrivels up and dies. There's a third set of seeds that fall into a soil where there are a lot of thorns and weeds. It's not prepared for a crop. And those seeds will grow, but the weeds will ultimately choke out the crop. Then the fourth set lands in good fertile soil that's been prepared and is ready to receive the seed. And that grows into a good, bountiful crop. And that's a parable that challenges our heart. What do you want to be? What kind of soil do you want to be? But it's also one where I look at it in terms of me as a child and think, I still hold on to the faith that I embraced so many years ago, so many decades ago. And it's, 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 there's, there's something to that. I mean, it, 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 it's something to, to nibble on in your brain. That something you believed as a child, you continue to hold on to so, if anything, stronger than ever as the years go by. And I really like that and I really want that. And that was so important to me as I considered the book of Hebrews. And we'll get into it at another time. Who wrote it, we don't know. When it was written, we're not sure. Probably before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Readily accepted by the early church. Not so much a letter as it seems to be a sermon. So we have here in the book of Hebrews an early Christian sermon that's been written down for the benefit of the church for the ages. And it's a sermon written to people who are steeped in Judaism who, are cons- who have become Christian in their faith and are considering leaving the Christian faith and returning to their pre-Christian Judaism. And so in the sense of that concern, and you may say, well, what's going on there? Time out for a moment and think about this. Jesus comes as a Jew. Jesus lives as a Jew. Jesus dies as a Jew. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus says to his Jewish followers, take the news of my resurrection, why it's happened and what it is, to the world. Because this is the blessing for humanity. And I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to take my people to live in the presence of God. Now, you've got people who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They could touch him. They ate with him. They walked with him. They, they, it, it, it's fully interactive, real, physical, resurrected Jesus. Thomas doubts. Jesus says, stick your fingers in the holes. Where the nails were. The spikes. Stick your hand in my side. Where the chunk of spear went in. It's me. In the flesh. Resurrected from the dead. Now I assure you. Most anybody. With half a brain. Who had that opportunity. Would fall on their knees. And say you are Lord. You are Lord. And they did. And they did by the thousands. And the church took off like wildfire. As this first generation of believers got to experience firsthand the resurrection of Jesus. Big argument of why this whole Christian thing can't be fake or phony. It's premised upon eyewitnesses. It's not premised upon speculation. The eyewitnesses caused the growth of the church. The eyewitnesses were the ones who ultimately would die for their faith rather than recant it. But what Jesus tells them is, I'm coming back. And they think this is exciting. And the early church sells everything and holds it in common. Because they're thinking, you know, if, gee, look, if the Lord's coming back tomorrow, I don't really need my car If the Lord's coming back tomorrow, I don't need to go to Dallas this afternoon. If the Lord's coming... It totally changes things if the Lord's coming back tomorrow. Then the church began to realize days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years, turn into decades. And now the church is realizing... Ah, God has this weird sense of timing that we don't get. And the apostles are teaching, look, you know, he promised the Messiah to Eve, but it didn't happen in her generation or lifetime. There's a whole lot that unfolds here. God's got a cosmic scheme going on. And so it's going to take just a little bit of time until God's ripe for God's return. And in the meanwhile, though, you've got some people who are saying, you know, when we accepted faith in Jesus, we thought he was coming back. But he doesn't seem to be coming back. And, you know, that was a long time ago. And that was the faith of my childhood, maybe. But, you know, the whole family celebrating Yom Kippur, uh, you know, we're Jewish. and, And maybe I just need to head back to the temple and head back to my Judaism. And it's in that frame of mind that the writer of Hebrews or the preacher of Hebrews preaches. And he preaches that Jesus is not just something that was a fad. Jesus is actually the ripened fulfillment of Jewish faith. Let me say that again. Jesus is not a fad. Jesus is the ripened, R-I-P-E-N-E-D, ripened fulfillment of the Jewish faith. I mean, if you look at it, Jesus doesn't sound very Jewish, but his real name was Yeshua. It could also be Yehoshua. The closest we get to his name in real English is Joshua. Joshua comes from the Hebrew word Jesus. Jesus is just our Greek, Latin, English derived word. You take Yehoshua or Yeshua and you turn it into Greek. And that now the Hebrew we're going to read from the right to the left. Opposite of the way. If you're dyslexic, you're not dyslexic. You just read Hebrew. Okay? Yeshua. That thing up there on the, the PowerPoint, if you're listening on the radio, sorry, come to class. That thing up there that is, looks almost like a, 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 a wavy apostrophe above the two dots, that's the Hebrew yod, and it, it is, we, you would pronounce it like a y. Now, Greek doesn't have that y. They use an i instead. And then the two dots below give it the sound of an E, which becomes the Greek E. And then the next letter that looks like three candlesticks joined together at the bottom, or like a W sort of, with a dot over one of them, that's the Hebrew letter Shen, or sin, depending upon where the dot's placed. But that's an S sound, so we have the Greek S. And then we have the stick that's got a dot in the middle next to it. That's the Greek va I mean the Hebrew Vav. And it's got an OO sound when that dot is there. So that's, and then the, the last letter is kind of an A sound, the Greek, uh, Hebrew Ion. So that turns in Greek into Yesus. That's the closest they're going to come to Yeshua, Yesus. And so, Jesus in the Greek is Yeshua in the Hebrew. Then the Latins get involved. And they turn the Greek letters into Latin letters. And then we get to King James and the English. And by then, we have a J. And the J takes over for that I. And it becomes Jesus. So, reaffirming the faith in Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah, Christ, to those thinking of leaving Judaism in their youth, that's the genesis of this book, Hebrews. Alright? So, within the framework of that, what does it say? Well, here's the, the, the outline of the book. Jesus, Yeshua, is superior to or over the angels. Why would you want to leave Jesus? He's superior to angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He is superior to the high priests and the Aaronic priesthood. Why would you want to go worship and serve and minister to be by the high priest and the, the Aaronic priesthood? Jesus trumps them. He's greater than them. He's greater, bless you. He's greater than the covenant, the old covenant. He's greater than the old sanctuary, the temple. Jesus offered a greater sacrifice than all of the sacrifices of the Jewish system. And so in light of this, what you need to do is persevere in your faith. Persevere in your faith and live accordingly. Live right. And that's the message of the book. Now let's give it in the flow. So within that flow, the book begins, the sermon begins with the statement that Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is the icon it's the Greek word, icon. He's the mirror image of God. When you see Jesus, you see a reflection of God, truly. Not only is Jesus the mirror image of God, but unlike the angels, Jesus is actually a son, the Son of God. He's designated the Son of God. Of what angels did God ever say, you're my son? Today I've begotten thee. God doesn't say that of the angels. That is exclusively Jesus, although through him we become daughters and sons as well. But Jesus is the son. Jesus is Messiah, not servant. The angels are here to serve. They serve God and His purposes. They serve us because we are His purpose. Jesus is His Messiah. He is our Savior. He's the Anointed One. He's not the Servant. He's the King. Now, some might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If if Jesus is all these things, if He's God, if He's the Son, if He's the Messiah... Then why did he get bumped off by the Romans? Why does he? Have, what's he doing down here among us in the muck and mire we call Earth? If this is really God, the sermon answers, and the sermon says, "No, no, no, you don't get it. Jesus was made low so that he could be lifted high and take us with him. He has to become human to beat death." Because death is the curse of humanity. So Jesus becomes human. He's willing to get down into the dirt with us, literally. So that he can defeat death and take us with him. And in him, we defeat death. Find me anyone who can cheat death for eternity. And I'll show you someone who believes in Jesus. Jesus is that. So Jesus is superior than the angels. Why would you leave Jesus? Why would you leave Jesus to return to the Mosaic Code? Jesus is superior to Moses. Oh, Moses was an amazing man of God. Moses did incredible things in the name of God. Through Moses came the law. God used Moses to deliver his chosen ones out of bondage in Egypt. Moses, an amazing, amazing godly man. What you'll find, though, is Moses was amazing because Moses was faithful in God's house. Moses is in God's house. Moses is faithful in God's house. Amazing man. But Jesus... Jesus is faithful over God's house. You see the difference? Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Here's the sermon. Let's see how if I can make it a little bit bigger. There we go. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. think about Jesus. Before you set Jesus aside to return to the Mosaic system, think about him. He's the apostle and he is the high priest of our confession. The apostle there, the one sent on God's behalf is apostle. Jesus is the one who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all. God's house. And we're going to see that again in a moment. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house they built. The builder gets, oh, this is a gorgeous house. I'd like to compliment your house on how beautiful it is. Don't compliment the house, compliment the builder. Compliment the designer. Compliment the the person who made it. The person who decorated it for Christmas. If You've ever seen Mark Wilkie's house at Christmas? You don't walk in and say, I'd like to congratulate these decorations on their marvelous display. He's the one who spent 20 years doing it in six months. You know, you, you, you. Every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. Look at this. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. So Moses is faithful in God's house as a servant, testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, is faithful over God's house as a son. Don't, don't return to the one who is in God's house tending to things. When you are the house itself and you are under the lordship of the one who's over the house. It's a marvelous thing. So within that vein, we continue going. Um, If we go back to the power. Thank you. The guys are a step ahead of me. So, Jesus is not only superior to Moses and his code, but Moses set up a priest system. God instructed Moses that Moses' brother Aaron and Aaron's descendants would be the Levitical priesthood. They would be the priests who would minister before God on behalf of the people. And one of them was a high priest who didn't quite get the cool scarf I have. But he still got to wear his high priestly garments. But wearing the scarf does not make you special. It just indicates who you are before God. It is God who makes the priest. It's not the priest who makes God. And in that sense, the sermon goes... Jesus becomes a high priest. But not because he's born of Levi. Jesus was not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. Jesus becomes a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's going to be one of our call-out sessions. We'll look at it in more detail. But for now, let me tell you this. Melchizedek was the high priest to whom Abraham went and bowed down. Okay? Now, here's the thing. The sermon says, this is not baby food. A lot of you are ready for baby food. Well, let's get past baby food. I'm not here to teach baby food, the sermon says. The sermon says, I'm here to give you the real meal. This is is the real meal. Something you can sink your teeth into. Jesus is superior to the high priest. Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Let's come back to the Elmo for a moment. So, I want you to think Jewish for a moment, okay? This is Abraham, all right? You know how you know it's Abraham? Abraham. Because I've wrote underneath it, Abraham. Otherwise, it might look like just anybody else. Now, Abraham has something inside him. Inside the loins of Abraham are the Israelites. Because Abraham's going to give birth. No, he doesn't give birth. Abraham is going to impregnate Sarah, his wife. And they will have a child, Isaac. And Isaac is from the seed of Abraham. So the offspring of all of Israel is from Abraham's seed. It is within Abraham in a Jewish thought sense. So when Abraham does something, he's doing it on behalf of all of his offspring. And what does Abraham do? By the way, all of his offspring include Moses, includes Aaron, includes all of the Levitical priests. Whoops. All of those are offspring of Abraham. What does Abraham do? Abraham goes to this priest named Melchizedek. And we'll put him up there. You know it's Melchizedek because I've written his name. Even though I've misspelled it perhaps. Depends on how you translate the Hebrew letters. Um, Abraham bows before Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is is seen as the priest above Abraham. So, as Abraham bows, and he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek breaks bread and wine with him. As that happens, what we are to see in this, if we go back to the PowerPoint, is Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Lots of plays on names, things like that we'll get into later. But Jesus is superior to the Aaronic priests. Not only is Jesus superior to the priests, but Jesus has a superior covenant too. Jesus' covenant. The old covenant, and I've put a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, but the covenant was much bigger than the Ark. The old covenant included the, the tabernacle. Moses was told, build it exactly like this. Follow the pattern. Use this pattern as tracing paper. Get it just right. Details matter. Because in the tabernacle itself, we see reflected the redemptive story of Jesus and critical elements to that story. And so Jesus offers a covenant that's superior to the covenant of Moses. If we go and we look at... uh, Hebrews chapter um, 8, verses 1 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Look at what we read about on the covenant. The point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent... Not the tabernacle, the tent that Moses built under the first covenant, but in the true heavenlies that were reflected there. This is one the Lord set up. This isn't some human tent. Do you really want to cling to the human tent or temple as it was then built? When you could cling to the temple the Lord built? Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. It's necessary for this priest to have offered something also for Jesus. And he did. If he were on earth, Jesus wouldn't be a priest. Because there are priests who offer gifts. Jesus isn't just some priest like you see down at the temple. They're serving a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern That was shown you on the mountain. But now Christ has a ministry... That's much more excellent than the old. Just as the covenant he mediates is better. It's based on better promises. What we've got now is not something you... Throw away for the old way. Even this was talked about... Under the old covenant. In the old covenant it is the prophet. The prophet who says... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days in our time. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. You don't have to tell someone who's a Christian, Know the Lord, because they all know me. They all know me from the least to the greatest, and I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. This is the beauty of the covenant in Jesus. This is the beauty of the covenant, that that we, we all know God by definition if we know Jesus. You cannot know Jesus and not know God. Jesus is God. He's the mirror image. He's the Son. And so if you know Jesus, you know God. And the law... Was that was given by God is put into your heart it's put into your mind if you are a believer you know the difference between right and wrong you may not want to you may pretend you don't you may say well I'm not sure well this just seemed right at the moment oh horse hockey You know the difference between right and wrong if you know the Lord Jesus. Because His Holy Spirit is within you. And it convicts you of sin and it convicts you of righteousness. And that's why most sinners walk... Most Well, we're all sinners. But most people who are just entrenched in rebellion before the Lord, who are believers, walk around with one of two faces most of the time that I see. It's either kind of this hangdog... Because they know they're in rebellion and they don't, you know, and life is miserable and why is everything going bad? And I know I'm in rebellion, da, da, da. Or they're so defiant that it's just like, I'm just going to boldly go out there. But either way, they know what's going on in their heart. Look, if you know the Lord and you're in rebellion to the Lord right now, you know it. You don't need me to tell you. You know exactly what I'm saying is true. And that's the call of God. Moses made things from a pattern. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Moses made things from a pattern. Even the sanctuary that Jesus has is is superior. The sanctuary of Jesus is not like the sanctuary of, of old. The sanctuary of Jesus is not like the copy. It's the authentic thing. Hebrews 9 1 through 12. Look at it for a moment. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place, whoops, and an earthly place for holiness. A tent was prepared. The first section was the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. All of these things happened. There's the cherubim, there's the mercy seat. Of these things, he says, I'm not going to speak now in detail. I don't have time, I reckon, for the sermon. I don't have time here either. But we'll dig back into this more deeply in classes to come. But he says, by this... Oh, oh, oh. All of these preparations were there because once a year... Well, first, the priest regularly would go into the first section of the temple to perform regular duties. That was a daily thing. But into the second the Holy of Holies, the high priest only goes. And he only goes once a year. And before he goes, he has to take blood as a sacrifice, an innocent life of an animal, an innocent life of an, uh, 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 blood of an innocent life to redeem the sin of a sinful life. Not only for the people, but for the priest himself as well as the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the presence of God. The holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. See, you only go in once a year to the holy places. It's not open for everybody. Only the high priest goes in. It's not open for everybody. Not even for all the priests. But Jesus has changed that. Because he has gone in on our behalf and has torn down the dividing wall. So when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered it once for all into the holy place. He doesn't have to do it each year. And he didn't have to take his own, he didn't have to take the blood of an innocent to allow him to go into the presence of God. Jesus was innocent. Jesus goes into the presence of God as the innocent one who has not sinned. And so when Jesus takes blood into the presence of God, He takes it on behalf of us. And His blood is fully sufficient. He doesn't... And this isn't like, okay, well, this is our, our uh, uh, blood for, for these sins. But now we got more. we got to do something again. You don't do that again. The sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. It's not a routine. It's not a process that you keep coming back and forth. That's why the writer says that the sacrifice of Jesus is a superior sacrifice. Look, you kill all the goats in the world you want. But all they are is a symbol that innocent life needs to be offered for your sin. Moses set it out exactly the way God told him to. So that the people would learn innocent blood must be shed for the sins of others. The problem is the innocent blood of a goat doesn't really do you and I much good at all. Because we're not goats. Oh, some may wear a goatee, but that doesn't make them a goat. So this is where the sacrifice of Christ comes in. This is the reality to the shadow that was seen in Moses' code. Moses drew it according to a pattern with God's omniscience of what reality would be. It's the reason as Christians, even though we follow the teachings of God through Moses as well as Jesus, we recognize that there are some aspects of Moses' teaching... That were regulations and rules set aside for other purposes than eternal purity. So it is important for us that that we follow aspects of the Mosaic Code. But issues of food and and issues of of animal sacrifice and things like that. They're not in the lives of Christians. And and this is what we've got. And, and, And we've got it. You know, in in the copy versus the reality mode. So, where does that leave us? In the sermon, that leaves us with his final point persevere and live right. I love, I mean, it's a famous, famous passage, um, chapter uh, uh, 11. But before we get to it, look at chapter 10. These are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, okay? Old or New Testament. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, because of these things that the sermon's been saying, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Gather that in for a moment. Inhale that. Since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. See, what divided off in the tabernacle that Moses built, the holy of holies from the the outer place where the sacrifices were offered for the people was a curtain. And what the writer is saying is, we can enter into the very presence of God with confidence. Do you know the import of that? Prayer is not simply words we mumble under our lips. Prayer is not simply an opportunity for us to acknowledge God and be grateful. But through the blood of Jesus, there's a curtain that's been ripped and we come into the very presence of God. And anyone who comes into the presence of a holy, almighty God should do so with great trembling and fear, except for the fact that we can do it with confidence because we're not there because of our merit. We're not there because we're good enough. We're not there because we didn't sin this week. We're not there because our good outweighed our bad. We're there pure and undefiled, washed clean, because the price, the penalty, the blood price for all of our shortcomings, transgressions, sins, and errors has been paid through Jesus. Jesus. And we are ushered in as pure, unblemished lambs to the presence of the Father. And so we draw in with confidence. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Don't abdicate what you've grown and learned. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Don't leave him just to return to the Mosaic Code. Don't leave the presence of God. God is faithful. And so it changes the way we live. We consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We don't neglect coming to meet together. But we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And I promise you, Jesus is a day closer to returning today than he was yesterday. And the reason I stand up here every Sunday I can is this right here. I want to figure out how to stir up one another to love and good works. I want to meet together. I want to be an encouragement to you. I want to encourage you to love each other and to love the world and to love the Lord. I want to encourage you to be faithful. I want to encourage you to see that our faith is not just a a social club. But it's based upon a bedrock, firm foundation that there is a God. That He is a righteous and a holy God and He doesn't change. But He's a God of such love and mercy that He'll take unrighteous, unholy people and in His own just way redeem them Redeem us so that we may be with him. And so we encourage one another. And it's not just us. But the writer goes on, the, the sermon goes on to say, faith, this is what we have. We trust the Lord. We have faith in him. It's an assurance of things that we confidently expect. It's a conviction of things that we don't see yet. We don't see the reality of this but we understand it and we're convinced. By it, people of old received their commendation. I mean, it was trusting in the Lord that 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 caused so much. It was trusting in the Lord for Abel, that he was able to offer a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was trusting in the Lord by faith. Noah, being warned about unseen events, still built the ark. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out from Ur of the Chaldees. He went to a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. It was by faith that Sarah had power to conceive. Even though in an old age. It was by faith that Abraham offered up Isaac. It was by faith that Isaac invoked blessings on Jacob and Esau. It was by faith. Faith that Jacob, when dying, blessed the sons of Joseph. It was by faith that Joseph made mention of the exodus. It was by faith that Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. That's his parents' faith. But it was by faith when Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith Moses left Egypt. He just trusted the Lord. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. They trusted the Lord. Gideon, Barak, Barak, uh, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, faith. So, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses as these, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We look to Jesus who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We can model from him. We won't grow weary. We live in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. If we go back to the PowerPoint, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that inspire us. So the sermon says, don't leave your Christian faith and return to the religious practices of your youth as a Jew. But embrace the Judaism that is in Jesus. Because it is the reality to the shadows. And persevere in that, for God is faithful. Which brings us to the points for home. Point for home number one. No. I love that passage. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Knowing who Jesus is changes who I am. It changes how I approach God. It changes how I approach you. It changes how I approach my family. It changes how I approach life. It really does. And that's part of the growing part. It's interesting, the passage that says you need milk, not solid food. Solid food's for the mature, but I'm going to go ahead and give you solid food anyway. He goes on further in that passage in in verse 13 and 14, and he says, the way to solid food is constant discernment between good and evil. Here's what it means. You want to grow in the Lord? Grow in the Lord. Do right. Choose right. Choose good over evil. Make deliberate decisions to follow Jesus. Make deliberate decisions that even though everything in me seems to cry out, I want to do the wrong thing, you make the deliberate decision, but by the power of God, I'm going to do the right thing. It may not be easy, it may not be comfortable, it may not be fun, but it's right. And that's a mark of maturity. And then prayer. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what are we doing on the outside? I had a lady stop me as I came out of church this morning. And I was on my way down here to teach. And she said, can I interrupt you? I said, yes. She said, would you pray for me? I thought, interrupt me? That's what I live for. Would I ever. The honor to pray and to care and to love. We get to, and it's not words that bounce off the ceiling. They go straight into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. This is the God who resurrects from the dead. He can handle what I'm praying about. May I bless you, and we'll look at this more closely next week. I think if I can get the lesson written, I got. it depends on time, but it's going to be uh, the, voice of, the voice of God in Hebrews. It's a tremendous thread in Hebrews that we're going to trace through that I'm really excited to teach. Uh, if I don't have time, we'll do the Melchizedek because I've already got a good jump on that. I was originally part of this lesson, and I pulled it out. All right? But I think it's going to be the voice of the Lord. I promise you, I really think next week can can, can be a very special lesson. Uh, so pray for me to get it done, please. And Lord, I pray your blessings upon the folks who hear this message. And I pray that the, the blessing will not come from my words, Father, but from your love and your historical acts of grand justice and mercy on our behalf. Quicken our hearts to faith, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.